Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. I am Jeremy Lightning, and I am here with my co-host Zirconium. Today we are interviewing, we're having a special Reformation edition of our Thirsty Podcast. We are interviewing Pastor Nathaniel Biebert, uh, who is pastor at Winter, South Dakota. Dakota, it, is it? A, I forget. Is it a dual parish? Uh, it is not. Nope. Okay, just just winter. Uh, so, welcome, Pastor Bieber. Thank you for having me. So, Nathaniel, why don't you tell us about your ministry currently in winter? What's it like there? It's winter, like the opposite yeah, it is, of it's winter. Um, the, oh, the winter the history is actually kind of interesting. I just but, uh, I just assumed it was like uh, winter always in South Dakota because that's what no, I always we're actually in, in we're actually in the warmest part of the Dakotas. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, the saying around here is, if you don't like the weather, wait twenty four hours. So even even in the winter, if there's snow on the ground, there's a good chance it could. Railroad, and then immediately uh, was vying for being the county seat. And there were a couple of different cities that were vying for the county seat. And this city that was perhaps not even completely built yet or founded yet uh, ended up winning for the county seat. So it was the winner. Uh, and they kind of picked that name then to rub it in the other cities' faces. So it's uh, the name itself is not a very Christian name, but uh, um, so. Uh, but yeah, Trinity Lutheran in Winter, South Dakota. Um, it's a uh, about a city of 3000 people hunting is a big Um, about 200 members on the books and uh, one service on Sunday, Bible class on Sunday, um, and a couple different Bible classes then during the week. And other than that, it's kind of a pretty, pretty bread and butter standard ministry being carried out here. So there was a little girl I heard about once, uh, actually, uh, somebody that I know who, when she was younger, was driving with her family through the Dakotas. And uh, there, there was a marquee hotel sign that said, um, you know, welcome and whatever, welcome hunters. But then at the bottom, it said, uh, no pheasant cleaning in your rooms. <laughs> and, and, she, and she was so confused. She was asking her dad, dad, what's wrong with cleaning pheasants? Why would they be? could take a, a U.S. highway the entire way. Um, and then kind of it merges in winter, um, uh, or sorry, it merges in Cologne, which is just uh, southeast of winter with uh, Highway 18, which kind of goes along the southern part of the state, goes east and west along the southern part of the state. And then also Highway 44 goes through the state, which is another popular east-west state highway. And I love taking that from uh, between winter and Rapid City, if you take Highway 44 the whole way, instead of going up to the interstate, you can basically go at your own pace and see every kind of topography that you can see almost on the earth. So um, it's a really cool state in that regard, how the, the landscape and the scenery changes almost every five miles or so. So I was going to uh, ask you to talk a little bit about, um, well, actually, I was wondering, what is uh, the biggest difference in all of the places that you have served? I, th I can see a lot of similarities. You've, you've served in um, Wisconsin and Texas before this. Uh, Austin, wh where in Wisconsin again? Uh, I served a dual uh, rural parish just outside of Wausau, Wisconsin, northwest of Wausau. That was, that was where the dual thing must have been lodged in my brain. Um, but uh, but he, uh, he's done some pretty extensive, Pastor Bieber's done some pretty extensive research on uh, one of the pastors of that, of those congregations, was it? Or 
Pastor. Yeah, so that uh, serving there kind of really got, I was never a huge um, church history buff in school or or all that interested in church history. I was, I've always been interested in the life of Luther because of my dad, um, but not really interested in too much church history beyond that. But that really changed when I got the call to those two parishes. I did serve one year as a tutor at Nebraska Lutheran High School before that. Um, but then, yeah, I got reassigned to those two parishes and just was paging around in their archives one day and um, found this bio- autobiography of their very the very first pastor that had served in the area. And it was kind of a rough translation, but still readable. And I was just I couldn't put it down. I kept turning page after page after page. I was like, this is fascinating. And I could identify a lot of the places where this guy was talking about these stories taking place. Um, so anyway, long story short, I ended up since the entire thing had not, his entire autobiography had not been translated except in very abridged form and into kind of broken English. The the guy who translated the whole thing in abridged form was actually one of his sons for whom English was also not his first language. Um, so I ended up retranslating his entire autobiography unabridged from his original manuscript, uh, which is in the possession of the Concordia Historical Institute, and having that published under the title Sacred Storytelling um, and just was a really fun project to work with, uh, work on. And I got to talk with a lot of uh, a lot of different Lutherans throughout throughout our country and travel to a lot of different places and kind of retrace uh, this pastor, Johannes Streeter's um, steps. He lived from um, 1839 uh, to 1920 uh, was his dates. Uh, so just living at a fascinating time in the development of America and in the development of Lutheranism in the Midwest. And so it was really cool to work on that project. But the reason I bring it up is because I, Pastor Biebert is one of the people that I like to listen to his sermons online, uh, just sort of private for devotional purposes. And uh, they, I would always like it whenever he in a sermon, he would say, it's time for a Pastor Streeter story. Yeah, uh, and because this guy was just kind of fascinating, he was like an evangelist, like a pioneer. Uh, but a lot of times, the uh, Christian evangelists on the American frontier were more of the reformed type um, that uh, didn't really, you know, kind of got a watered down Christianity. And uh, Pastor Streeter was very uh, orthodox, doctrinally minded kind of a guy. Yeah, and. Uh... Yeah, so if he needed to have a debate with the local pastor in his front yard on a wagon and invite all the neighbors to attend, he'd do it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, he, I, I find an endless well of sermon and Bible class illustrations uh, from that project. So, yeah, I, I enjoy sharing Streeter stories. I Actually, now that you bring that up, I have yet to share a single Streeter story from the pulpit here at uh, Trinity in winter. So I'll have to uh, um, I'll have to remedy that in short order. So. Uh, was he one of those traveling preachers then, uh, at Rise of Prideger? Yeah, he he ended up being that. Um, that wasn't necessarily what he was called to be, um, but especially while he was serving in um, r- the rural Princeton, Wisconsin area, um, he's, he had four congregations that he was called to serve there. And then there were some relatives of members there who lived up in the rural Wausau area who uh, came to visit their relatives down there and asked Pastor Streeter if they would serve them too, because they didn't have a pastor. And that led to Pastor Streeter making a number of trips, not only to the rural Wausau area, uh, but also up as far as uh, the Eau Claire area and west of Eau Claire into the Durand, um, Durand and other other cities uh, west of Eau Claire into those areas. And so he uh, traveled quite a distance on on horseback and via sled in the winter and uh, horse and buggy. Um, bringing the gospel to various various immigrants and various people. So very, very interesting life. He had, took him two full days to make the trip from the Princeton area to rural Wausau back then, and it's two hours now. So um, just crazy how times have changed. So I'm assuming you translated that from German, correct? Yep. Yep, so then it was German. It was German. Unlike most projects that I work on, which are German print, this was his handwritten German um in the manuscript so the current shrift as it's called so then who's better at german the one that translated a book into german or the one that teaches german for high schoolers uh the one that teaches german for high schoolers okay 
because it's his podcast. By their, <laughs> by their fruits, you will recognize them. So I don't know if you want to look at any of the fruit of my German teaching. Uh, you know, the, the other thing that uh, he, he's done, uh, Pastor Biebert is, has done is uh, written a book about uh, the great Lutheran musician, musician Michael Praetorius, um, which uh, I, would you please talk about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just been another uh, interest of mine ever since high school, I guess, first hearing Praetorius's music from some of our roommates' uh, rooms. I, that's just a fortunate uh, coincidence of divine providence that uh, I don't, otherwise I don't know if I would have been introduced to Praetorius's music that early, but uh, I've always been fascinated by listening to his music. It always had a very robust nature to it. And so um, had the opportunity uh, leading up to 2021, which was the 400th anniversary of his death in 1621 uh, to translate uh a bio, uh, not an autobiography, but a biography that had been written by him in German since there was as yet no English biography of Michael Praetorius available, just basically articles in journals and in um, like encyclopedias and stuff like that. Um, so I translated that and also did a lot of original translation work and other work that I put into the appendices of that book. So that's that's titled Heaven is My Fatherland. Um the life and work of Michael Praetorius. And uh, yeah, great uh, for anyone who's interested in historic Christian music or just in the history of individuals from the past or that era of history. He lived from 1571 to 1621. That was also a very fun project to work on. I think it'll give people a good impression of what uh, what you mean by robust and, and why this is an interesting topic to, to talk about. Uh, if you could uh, share any of the quotes, like if you, if you got any little gems or things, I know you've shared some with me from time to time or with, with our, our classmates in, in email groups and things like that. Um, and just to get the ball rolling, like uh, what was that instruction that he gave about the horns for the end of the, the, the trumpets at the end of the Christmas morning mass um, that, that he, he gave special instructions about the trumpets and where to position them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, I, I don't know if I remember his specific instructions, but basically that they would be arranged uh, separately. And I think, um, and I don't know if this was based on his um, specific instructions, but um, I know that with one of the most popular recordings of that, of that Christmas morning mass, um, they actually had to position them super separately. They actually put them outside of the church, blowing the trumpets into the church because it was too loud to have them inside the church. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just a so very popular thing, uh, or I shouldn't say popular, but a very uh, characteristically praetorious thing to have different groups of instruments and singers positioned at various places throughout the church. Kind of an early stereo effect, um, basically, that you would have um, these different choirs, as he called them, calling and responding to each other, and then sometimes joining in for very robust refrains um, and high points in the music, uh, so to speak. And and he really he really enjoyed that kind of musical architecture, as sometimes it's called. So that's like apocryphal. That he, I thought that was a specific thing he said, like you may have to put these outside of the church or something like that. Is that, I, I that, couldn't tell you if he himself uh, specifically made that instruction and all the instructions I ever read, he definitely talked about positioning different choirs uh, separately and oftentimes giving a bunch of variations of instructions for certain choirs. You could do this, or you could do this, or you could do this. I don't recall in particular him saying um, you might need to position them outside the church. I think that was, maybe just what was done in that particular case because they had such a big group of trumpeters and they were so strong. You'll have to remember that, Jeremy, when we have brass for Christmas and Easter this year, if we need to open up the doors and have them outside. Right. And I was going to make the connection for if any, particularly any Water of Life members, uh, I doubt anybody would remember this, but Michael, you had me sing uh, the, the hymn from our new hymnal is a Praetorius hymn uh, on Christmas morning that uh, I think it was like during communion distribution. Um, I don't know if my wife told you that I really liked that one, but 
that was one of my favorites. And then you asked me to sing that for Christmas Day uh, communion distribution. Do you do you recall this at all? I'm going to guess it was your wife probably suggested it to me because I know nothing about music. <laughs> well, so that was, was a Praetorius hymn. Was it Behold a Branch is Growing or? No, it was the, uh, uh, ah, goodness. Ein Kind geboren zu Bethlehem. Oh, a child is born in Bethlehem. Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just to be clear, like with a lot of Praetorius's more popular Christmas music and hymns, most, if not almost exclusively, it's never his text, but his settings. Um, his settings to the music that have become popular over time. Like he's, it, everyone will talk about Praetorius's setting of behold, the branches growing, or sometimes it's translated low, how a rose air blooming, but uh, it's not his hymn. Um, he didn't write the text, but he did write the setting and the setting is what keeps on being sung uh, throughout the generations. So what's right. been the biggest, biggest difference between um, serving in Austin and serving in uh, Wausau area and serving in winter well between Austin and here the traffic is a whole lot better here um <laughs> it would uh I only lived like two miles from church and it would often take me 10 minutes uh, to get from home to church uh because of the traffic and uh so yeah I don't have to worry about that as much here um I, I think I, I, I enjoyed, uh, I truly enjoyed uh, serving in the Austin area uh, for a number of reasons. The people were wonderful. The food was fantastic. Uh, the food scene is awesome, is, is awesome. The music scene in Austin is awesome. In fact, I got to use a lot of, um, I got to make, make, uh, make use of a lot of the connect, musical connections I made in the community in my Praetorius research as well while working on that project. So that worked out nicely. Um, I think what I'm kind of learning about myself, especially after moving back to a more rural area, like where I came from and where I grew up in, is that kind of, it kind of is a more natural fit for me. And maybe it is just because I grew up more in those situations. My dad, for many years, was a pastor at a rural dual parish. And I can remember, you know, the, you know, the, the things we did for fun were ride around with the local vet on his trips or go watch a member's cow give birth or go out hunting with my dad. Uh, or go play makeup, make believe games with my brothers outside and run all over the countryside. And um, I guess I'm finding out that uh, I'm that's probably just uh, a good a good fit for me. I kind of understand that mindset more um, than than necessarily the the busy rushing business mindset that you find um, in the city. So I, I do definitely appreciate the more laid back pace of more. Both my dual parish in Wisconsin, uh, which was actually out in the country, and then this, which is in the city, but just more more rural minded. The the pace of life is definitely more laid back and more relaxed here, which I appreciate. Just a lot more. Uh, you often hear the term "down to earth" um, with areas like this, and definitely, I definitely do perceive that. A uh, lot, just a lot of good common sense, salt of the earth, down to the earth uh, type people. So since you guys were talking about Michael Praetorius, do you know how many Michael Praetorius hymns are in the new Christian worship hymnal? I know that there's a lot more in this hymnal than there were in the last one, but I, I don't know the number off the top of my head. I want to say like five or six, but that would just be stabbing in the dark. See, I do know the number off the top of my head. It's eight. Eight, okay. Eight. Most of them that I have never heard of before, but yeah. I don't really know off the top of my head. I went and grabbed my hymnal. Well, I, I tried to get him to tell this to me and he, he wouldn't tell it to me in so many words, but, uh, I kind of suspect that it's because of the hymnal director whose name is Michael Praetorius. If you were to translate his Latin, last name into Latin, um, Schultz is the German version of Praetorius. Uh, so I have a feeling he has kind of a soft spot in his heart for Michael Praetorius because his name is exactly the same and they have similar interests. Very nice. It's like it's like mayor, isn't it? It's kind of a word for a city official. Schultz uh, it's, yeah, it's it's more for like a, a village judge or magistrate, someone who handled kind of lower level court cases. Um, and yeah, so that's what Schult, Schult, uh, Schultz is the full German word Schultz, and then it was shortened to Schultz. But yeah, Praetor, Praetor or Praetorius 
um, are the Latin equivalents. Jeremy, you want to get into the gospel lesson? Sure. Unless you want to talk Praetorius the whole time. <laughs> uh, the gospel is uh, for Reformation Sunday this week is from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you remain in my word, you are really my disciples. You will also know the truth and the truth will set you free. We are Abraham's descendants, they answered, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say you will be set free? Jesus answered, amen, amen, I tell you, everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. But a slave does not remain in the family forever. A son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. So Nathaniel, you know, as I was studying this, uh, Jesus is talking to these Jews and he talks about freedom. And then later on, he, he can sound kind of harsh, but I thought it was kind of strange that he's directing these words to those Jews who believed in him. Why do you think he would have words like this that can be harsh toward the end to those who believed in him? Yeah. And, and what is the verse like right before Um right before this verse too like it just talks about them like uh, many people put their faith in him and then like you say right away it's like to those who had put their faith in him jesus says this um and and i think maybe some of it is is maybe jesus using a little bit of his um i don't i don't know if it was just his intuition from being just such a brilliant human being um or if he was even using a little bit of his divine uh, knowledge and power. Um, but you, you can tell from the conversation as it develops, it's almost like Jesus knew what kind of followers they were going to be, um, fair weather followers uh, of him, um, or followers when the message only meant uh, good things for them, earthly speaking. And so he he gives them this warning, so to speak. Um, but I, I think it's also just something that Jesus wants us to know in general. It's it's kind of parallel to the parable of the sower and the seed, right? Um, he doesn't want them to be those that that believe just for a little while, whose whose roots spring up immediately, but then they get choked out because it's on rocky soil or uh, planted among the thorns or whatever. Uh, Jesus Jesus wants followers who persevere in Him. He doesn't want fair weather followers, and so He's giving us a warning. I, I just recently gave a conference paper on Romans 8, and there definitely Paul is just going full-fledged gospel and just assuring people that if they're believers in Jesus, they're going to inherit eternal life. Um, and I made the point there that, you know, when Paul's preaching like that, then we ought to preach like that and not, not you know, say things like, yeah, Jesus promises here that you're never going to be snatched out of his hand, but you could still jump out of his hand. You know, that's not what Jesus is preaching there. And that's not what Paul is preaching in Romans eight, but here is a place where Jesus is giving us a warning and saying, yeah, you believe in me now, but are you going to believe in me later? Um, and, and I want, I want full fledged followers of me. I want people who persevere. Yeah. One of the things I was wondering about is, is Jesus kind of talking to the one talking uh, to the one group who believes in him, but also really speaking to the other group that's there that maybe doesn't believe in him. You know, kind of like yesterday in catechism class, you know, I've got the good students and then the not so good students, those who are listening intently, and then those who are goofing off. And uh, usually in my eighth grade catechism class, I'll have some videos like yesterday, we were studying the Exodus. So I had clips from the 10 commandments but i had to not have the clips and i explained you guys aren't paying attention well i took some some of my eighth graders out on shut-in visits later on and i was talking to these students because they want to be pastors or teachers and that's why i took them with me and so i asked them well you know i'm sure you have some boring teachers and pastors and then one said well yeah i like this other pastor more than you because uh you're boring and I can be a lot of, I, you know, kids can say a lot of things. People can say a lot of things to me, but boring, <laughs> that better not be one of them. And before I could say anything, one of the kids in the back seat said, uh, and he also was upset because they didn't get to watch the movie clips. And then the one kid in the back said, 
it was our own fault. And one said, well, I didn't do anything. And the other said, yeah, but we as a class were goofing off. We weren't paying attention. So pastor was right. So I just wonder if maybe that's part of it too, is past is Jesus is trying to speak through those who do believe in him to those who are also there in the audience that, that don't, that, that don't believe in him or are confused about his role as being the Messiah. Yeah. I mean, certainly whenever Jesus speaks, he doesn't mind anyone eavesdropping, right. Uh, who happens to, to be in the audience. Um, uh, the, obviously he is, he is actually addressing those who believed in him because the text says it explicitly, right? It says to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said these words. So, uh, clearly Jesus wants them to hear it too. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of people in that crowd. Um, and Jesus, uh, certainly doesn't mind if his words also reach them as well, because, um, what he's going to be talking about is, is basically stuff that's human nature, right? Um, follow when it's convenient and, uh, and get out of Dodge when it's not. I, I don't think that the words, the, the condemning words are really directed at, I mean, it's, it's with I, everything that you're saying is accurate here. The whole thing is directed at the whole group. And so they're, they're all part of it. But the fact is the, the two that believed in him, the Jews who had believed in him part is not really the condemning part. It's right. more so after they respond and say, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves. That's when Jesus uh, really gets serious. But then even then, it's not it's not like uh, a condemning to hell kind of a serious. It's it's just warning about what happens when you keep on sinning. You're a slave to sin. And the part that's directed to the Jews who believed in him is conditional. It's it's. It's not saying, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I should say it's not law or gospel. It's one or the other, but <laughs> it, it's, 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 there's a big if, and that, that's even a separate word in the Greek language. If you remain in my word, you are really my disciples. Uh, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yeah. I, one of the ways I was, I was just thinking about, I'm, I'm not preaching on this for Reformation, but I was just thinking about different ways that this could maybe be outlined if you were preaching on it. And one of the ways I thought is, you know, Jesus, Jesus wants perseverance in the faith. And then he also gives good reasons for us to persevere in the faith by showing us what the blessings of that faith are. Um, That's a long second part. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just tease it. Hey, hey Jeremy. Uh, were the Jews being honest when they said they were never slaves of anyone? Um, no, well, they were being forgetful. <laughs> um, they were being not good historians, uh, like people who write Praetorius histories and Pastor Streeter histories. Uh, they were being not good historians because, first of all, they were completely forgetting about the Roman occupation at the time that uh, they they were basically treated no different, very little different than slaves by the Romans who were their overlords. Uh, but then uh, the, that great redemption story of the Old Testament, which should have been such a highly ingrained part of their thinking from all the Passovers was the Exodus that you were, and God told them over and over in the, uh, in the Torah, that you are sl you were slaves in Egypt, um, yeah. Don't wait, where do you get this idea that you've never been a slave of anyone? And yet, I also find it interesting. Jesus doesn't address that, does he? Um, no. He he lets their he let them. I mean, they're they're obviously saying we ourselves, right? Like we ourselves are, are have never been been slaves of anyone. Luther Luther thinks that they might also be alluding to. Um, God's promise in connection with Jacob and Esau, the older will serve the younger, um, basically saying, you know, as Abraham's descendants, we have these, you know, we have these promises that we're going to be top dog. Obviously, they're misunderstanding those promises, if that's what they're thinking. But, um, but yeah, the, the point I think they're saying is that they're just simply looking at this as physical slavery, and they themselves have never They've never been in absolute control of anyone else's will. But that's when Jesus goes on to give that beautiful discourse, which is why this is chosen for the Reformation text to say this, 
Um, he's not talking about physical slavery. So, you know, I took that as, um, you know, we have never been slaves of anyone as they, as a, we, as a people. And that's why I, I asked that question that way of, you know, they had over 600 years at times, whether it's the Egyptians, you know, under the Philistines, they weren't te te uh, technically slaves, just like under the Romans, they weren't technically slaves, but, you know, they couldn't, they didn't, they weren't free either. And then you had the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonians and so forth. Uh, you know, so like uh, Jeremy said, I, I was thinking just selective memory with that. But then that gets into that point of application. Uh, so Nathaniel, who did the Jews consider to be their father? And who is Jesus in these words saying is their real father? Yeah, so he says... Um... Uh, they, they they obviously are making the claim that Abraham is their father and uh, want, want Jesus to be respecting all that they thought came along with that. And certainly there were some tremendous promises that were made to Abraham and to his descendants. Um, but Jesus, I mean, the whole point of this gospel is that Jesus is trying to clear up what those promises were all about. Um, and as a result of the fact that they're, they're not... Um, they're not understanding what those promises were all about and wanting to stick with the physical um, that, that they, you know, have circumcision, that they are descendants of Abraham. He later on, um, not in the text itself, but later on says, you belong to your father, the devil. I mean, comes right out and, and calls the devil their father because they're listening. They're listening to lies instead of to the truth. Right. Exactly. So I, that's, that's a, thing that jesus says in the verses that come after the lesson i just read right mm -hmm. right so um <clears throat> i, I kind of wanted to since you brought up luther i kind of wanted to go back and talk a little more about the uh, verses 31 and 32 um just because those were my confirmation verses and so i'm partial to them um it's uh it, the one thing I, I remember reading some of luther's words on this one time that he makes a big deal about the word really in verse 31 and says that is an odd thing for jesus to say uh, you are really my disciples so in other words there's disciples and then there's really disciples and it's true that there are people that call themselves christian and maybe even have very good intentions and yet there's a difference between people who think that they're christians and people who really are christians yeah. Um, Luther talks about sort of he, he's he paraphrase. He loves to paraphrase Jesus whenever Jesus is talking. It's basically like he's saying this or it's basically like he's saying that. And here he talks about, you know, basically that Jesus is saying, I have two types of disciples. Um, the one group believes in me. They praise and they hear the gospel and they say this is the real truth. Um, but then he said, then there's others who hear it. But when the battle grows hot, they declare, I'm going first. I'm, I'm do I really have to forsake? Uh, this or that for the sake of the gospel, and they don't remain true to the gospel, um, even though they they did believe in him before. They they're proven to not be true followers uh, of Jesus because true followers of Jesus don't give it up, um, don't give up following Jesus. So yeah, uh, sometimes that word truly or really, you know, truly repentant, really repentant, truly believers, uh, things like that. Sometimes that makes us nervous, and rightly so. But then there also is a place for it. Well, with that point you're bringing up, Jeremy, one of the questions I was going to ask, you know, what does Jesus say as the mark of his disciples? And I liked what you said about really his disciples. And there I'm reminded of your son Micah's devotion that he had written for our Wisconsin Lutheran School Fall Fun Day uh, last month, where because we have three campuses, it's hard for our students to get together. And so a few weeks ago on a Friday, we had all of the eighth graders all the way down to our preschoolers together into 10 groups. And then the eighth graders for their apologetics class had written devotions for them. And then I got to hear seven of the devotions the last two days as I took seven of our Water of Life students with me to do shut-in visits. And Micah's devotion today for the fall fun day and then with our shut-ins, he kind of talked about that, that it's... Uh, it's so, so easy to not go to church and make all kinds of excuses. And, and I would think 
if I were saying it, I would probably say it's easy for us to become apathetic and then really to become pathetic disciples. And that we, we're, we claim ownership of Christ, but then we don't want to do anything to really uh, show others that we are Christians. Yeah, and the other thing I really shouldn't get lost here, too, is, you know, you mentioned the mark, and Jesus doesn't actually use the word, uh, but really the, the mark that he talks about is is the mark of faith. Um, when he when he goes on to talk about what is the real slavery that, that we should all be concerned about, um, and the sun setting us free from that, um, and that's really the point that should never get lost in this gospel, especially on a Reformation Sunday, because Reformation Sunday is in many ways just a returning to the basics of law and gospel, um, and Jesus reminding us that Jesus is not a, a worldly savior. He isn't he isn't here to to free earthly slaves. He isn't here to bring social justice as such. He isn't here to uh, give us riches and wealth and 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 honor and all of that stuff. Luther hammers this home again and again when he's talking about this that he's here to deliver us from sins, um, and that's the mark of the disciple, the one who clings to that that deliverance, that spiritual gift that Jesus brings. Um, that's the true disciple, and that's going to be the person who doesn't forsake him. Um, when times get tough because they realize that they need that spiritual deliverance more than they need anything else. Well, to build on that then, and I think you were hitting on that, Nathaniel, is uh, Jesus says the truth. And since this is, Jeremy, your confirmation verse, it says the truth will set you free. What, is, what does he mean by freedom? The truth will set you free. Free from what? Free to do what? Right. I mean, it's, it's all of the above. Um, and we'll, we'll certainly get a, a good schooling in that when we read the epistle where uh, Paul talks in Galatians 5 about uh, freedom and, and why and how Christ has set us free. Uh, it's, it's being free from your sin. It's being free to serve God. And I was just even listening recently to a podcast with uh, it's secular. Actually, no, I shouldn't say that. They're not secular. One of them is a, a very devout Catholic, but they were talking about philosophy and how um, freedom, even in a secular sense, cannot mean that you just do whatever you want, because well, who, who is the you that's doing what you want? Is it is it the you that is thinking about tomorrow? Is it the you that's thinking about the people around you? Is it the you that is um, mature or is it just a, a whimsical, you know, spur of the moment you? Uh, and so it's not it's not really freedom to do whatever you want. I, I remember our uh, teacher, uh, Professor Deutschlander, telling us about this. It used this passage and it just it floored me when he said the one time um, freedom is not doing whatever you want. And I was like, what, really? And then he said, no, Jesus said so very clearly. And then he quoted this passage. Uh, Everyone who keeps committing sin is a slave to sin. Um, if you're a slave to your emotions or your passions, uh, that is not freedom. Well, a couple of things there. I feel you're on mute. I feel I kind tried. of left. I muted it because my bell was going off in the background, <laughs> but uh but yeah, and then and then what he would talk right after that, which also was a, a good wake up call, because I remember being floored by that too. He would he would say, after all, who's the most free being that there is? It's God, um, and he and he never sins. That's that's true freedom. So one of the things I was noticing is uh, I'm quoting eighth graders, and you guys are quoting Luther and Praetorius and Professor Deutschlander. So there's a big difference there. Well, in in your favor, uh, Pastor Zarling, uh, Luther Luther at the end of his comments on these verses, uh, quite a few times, basically says we need to go back and and basically listen to little children talk about Jesus's freedom and um, about about what he sets us free from because we get uh, as adults we get caught up in so much other stuff about what Jesus is here for and how he should be helping me out and the little child who knows how to pray the Lord's Prayer and say the, say the Apostles' Creed and knows what it means, uh, knows better what Jesus is talking about here than we do. So you're, you're on the better track than we are. All right. Well, 
and what I was thinking too with this is uh, that freedom of not have to, but you get to, or you're free to. And, and I talked about this yesterday as we were studying the an eighth grade catechism class of uh, the Exodus. And then uh, the next part of the lesson is the Israelites receiving the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai. And I talked about the freedom to keep these commandments because you know the kids in our sinful nature, even us as adults, oh, I have to honor my father and mother. Oh, I have to protect the life of others. I have to uh, you know, stay married and so forth. And I, and I challenged them. I said, all right, some of you are coming from broken homes. Which is better, to, to have a broken home or to have mom and dad love and honor each other and you have a, uh, you know, a good family life, two parents, and you get to come home to those two parents. There's freedom that comes and blessing that comes when we keep these commandments. And the same when we talked about the eighth commandment, that was a memory work of keeping someone's reputation. I talked about the freedom of honoring your father and mother, and then uh, your, your parents honoring you. And, you know, I, I try and put it in very stark terms for them that sometimes my <clears throat> older members, I don't know if you guys have seen this, where they feel guilty because they're living with their children and their children have to take care of them. And I'll put in stark words for the teenagers is to say, well, you know, that you guys uh, realize that your parents changed your diapers. And then one day you're going to show your love for them and you might have to change their diapers. Not because you have to, but because you want to, there's freedom in that. So. Yeah. And and the other thing sometimes I'll explore with my catechism students is to say, you know, if you don't have faith in Jesus as your savior, even when you do those things and maybe even do them willingly, change your parents' diapers, uh, don't hurt someone that everyone else likes to hurt or don't pick on someone that everyone else likes to put pick on. You're still a slave to sin because either you are doing those things that God doesn't want you to, or you're not doing them, but you're doing them for self-righteous reasons. And so you're a, you're a slave to sin either way, if you don't have faith in Christ and what, uh, what faith in Christ frees you to do is to actually say no to the devil um, for the first time in your life and to do what is right and to do it from a glad and willing heart. And what a joy that is. Then the last question I have for you guys on this before we get into the epistle lesson, as we've talked about freedom, how does that help us and our people prioritize our lives? Jeremy. Uh, the, word, the word in verse 31, uh, when Jesus says, if you remain in my word, um, it, it, it's it's been a translated in other versions as teaching uh, or in, in German, it's the word for doctrine. And uh, it's, so if you, when you, when you, if you want to be free, Jesus is saying, then you need to put my doctrine first. What, what are the, the verities of scripture? What are the foundations and pillars of all the things that are about Jesus and what he's done and who he is uh, that when those, when knowing those and ingraining those in your mind are the priority, then uh, you're going to know truth. And uh, later on, Jesus said he himself is the truth and that the truth is going to give you this true freedom. Um, so yeah, that, that, that may, well, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, uh, make it your top priority to get uh, closer to Christ through his word and all these other things will be given to you as well. Nathan, you want to add anything to that? No, I, I can't follow up when Jeremy uses the word verities. What am I supposed to do after that? <laughs> no, the, Jeremy's, yeah, spot on. You can't, God, God makes it so that his word is one thing that you cannot remain in. You cannot stick to, you cannot cling to unless it's the number one priority. Um, yeah. It can't be a hobby. Yeah. Well, on that, uh, like I said before, I took my seven of my eighth seven of my eighth graders with me to visit shut-ins this week because, by God's grace, those seven students all are right at least right now are thinking of going on to Martin Luther College to become a pastor and teachers. And one of them, the mom, 
uh, called he told me today after lunch yeah i talked to my mom after my visit today, yesterday and i do want to become a pastor so that was pretty cool and then the other six i talked to all of them while we were driving to and from our shut-in visits and they want to be uh teachers and and i just bring it up because what i did today then as i bought them all donuts and we took a picture of the seven of them eating donuts uh in our wls gym and i said uh in eight years if you if if any of you become teachers and graduate from mlc i will be there whether i'm your pastor or not because eight years is a long time i'll be there and i'll bring you donuts and i want to recreate this picture but to do that they have to keep prioritizing god's word you know they and their their parents and and i just sent this out as an email to our congregation before we started recording that they as members need to keep encouraging these young people. And that means they have to be here in church. They need to be hearing God's word. They need to be supporting the ministries of our church and grade school and high school and our church body that supports MLC and the seminary. Uh, they have to prioritize God's word and that word we said before of service so that these young people, Lord willing, can be there in eight years. Uh, Jeremy, you want to get into the uh, epistle reading from Galatians 5? Sure. Paul writes to the Galatians, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow anyone to put the yoke of slavery on you again. Look, I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who allows himself to be circumcised that he is obligated to do the whole law. You who are trying to be declared righteous by the law are completely separated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Indeed, through the Spirit, we by faith are eagerly waiting for the sure hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters. Rather, it is faith working through love that matters. So Nathaniel, Galatians 5, where uh, Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow anyone to put the yoke of slavery on you again. That's really, even though it's later in the, the book, it states the main reason that Paul wrote, wrote the book. What's that reason? Yeah, the Galatians were uh, succumbing to a gospel plus theology or a Jesus plus theology. Um where it wasn't uh, by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, um, that they were saved. But uh, especially the the Judaizers, as we call them, um, were hammering home that they had to keep some aspects of the ceremonial law as well, including circumcision. And um, Paul is minces no words <laughs> in his letter to the Galatians of getting any any human works involved in the picture of how we are saved and become right with God. So it isn't so much that like in verse two, when Paul says, if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, uh, I could see somebody giving just a very cursory listening to that and thinking suddenly, uh, oh no, I was circumcised. And uh, th that must mean I, I am, Christ is no benefit to me. Um, this was a specific scenario going on that yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. If you allow yourselves to be circumcised um, in keeping with the demands that these Judaizers are making of you. So then, Jerry, why don't you build on that with what is the yoke of slavery that the Christians in Galatia were putting on? So if you want to explain what a yoke was in part of your explanation. Uh, well, just uh, any kind of a. Uh, I, I think we should ask the pastor of the rural areas to explain. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yokes. They don't. They don't use yokes to plow their land anymore, though. <laughs> what? Probably haven't for several hundred years, huh? Or a hundred years? Yeah. Um, see, see, Jeremy and I live here in Racine, where you have big case tractors and implements, and yeah, we don't see any yokes coming out of the case factory. Yeah, why am I answering this question? There's the, another pastor here who grew up on a farm. Well, because you were next in line. 
I can uh, explain what a yoke is if you don't want to. There you go. You can do that, and then I will get okay. into theological implications. All right. Yeah. So we didn't use yokes either, though, even though we had really small farm equipment. But a yoke would be a, a large, usually wooden, maybe even iron, that would hold one or two oxen in place as they pulled a wagon or pulled a plow and so forth. But the idea is that yoke was heavy and it only allowed uh, allowed the oxen to go in one direction. Uh, and it was always in the direction that someone was moving it. And so if we're gonna apply it where Jeremy's gonna do that, uh, the yoke of slavery, the yoke of whatever these law laws that the Judaizers were putting on them, and then understanding, carrying that illustration forward of uh, the driver uh, moving the yoke. Well, the driver wasn't Jesus. It would be the other guy. It'd be the devil that's driving that yoke. So if you want to explain then the theological. And, and what you just said even made me think of uh, earlier in this letter to the Galatians, uh, or maybe it's later. It's at another point in Galatians where Paul says, that these Judaizers want to control you. They want to take you over for, but not for good. Um, like we do have human leaders and we, we do want to follow their lead, uh, but the, these are leaders that are setting themselves up in the Galatian churches and trying to kind of turn the yoke, trying to get, get people to move in a certain direction. And I think the application that you could make is pretty much anytime when uh, someone is just insistent upon some kind of a, a practice that is not uh, a, a practice uh, given by God in the Bible. Um, so like obviously communion or baptism, uh, if we're insistent on those, that's for good reason because God was insistent on those. But when it comes to any kind of a practice uh, where we say that... Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, and even oh, it could be like diet, like dietary, like, uh, you know, if somebody says, uh, you know, it's really bad for you to drink, so to drink soda, drink pop or Coke or whatever. And OK, that you could make a good argument for that. But in order to say this is a sin against God that you are doing and you're only a good God pleasing Christian when you give up your sugary soft drinks then that would be kind of like the yoke of uh, somebody trying to twist you in a direction that is not freedom. And that's the, and that's the key, isn't it? That when you're saying this is how you get right with God. So it could even be something that's God pleasing. It could be marriage. Um, it could be obeying your parents, um, whatever, you know, when you jump ahead to verse four, uh, you who are trying to be declared righteous by law um, are completely separated from Christ. So it wasn't the fact necessarily that they were picking circumcision. It was the fact that they were adding human works to the doctrine of justification. Well, that leads to the next question then, Nathaniel. What does Paul mean when he says that if they give in to circumcision, they would be obligated to do the whole law? Yeah, uh, salvation is, uh, you, can't, uh, you can't say, well, just, just this one law. Um, it's either by grace or it's not. Um, but as Paul says in Romans, if, it, um, if it's by works, then it's no longer by grace. Um, it's no longer by grace anymore. So you can't say, well, it's it's 99% by grace, uh, but just you also have to be circumcised. Um, Paul's saying if you bring the law into the picture, the law isn't going to, the law doesn't suffer to just be a, no, uh, a head poking into the tent. Um, the law wants to be completely inside the tent. Um, if you let it in. So when we're talking about how we're saved and our relationship with God, um, the law is either completely in the picture, which is false, or it needs to be completely out of the picture, which is what Paul's advocating for. Well, then and to build on that, then uh, completely out of the picture, the opposite of law and works. Uh, Paul mentions that in verses five and six, Jeremy, if you want to talk about what is the opposite of works? Uh, grace, God's uh, uh, favorable attitude toward us that we do not deserve in Christ. Um, I guess uh, a good illustration would be, I was just thinking as, as Nathaniel was talking about uh, an illustration that um, uh, Pastor uh, Professor Brug uh, used one time, I heard, where he said, Whenever there are uh, people that, or whenever there are like uh, fast food places that have a deal of 
buy one, get one free, I always want to walk in uh, up to the counter and ask, uh, oh, oh, can I, can I just have the free one? Um, because it's not actually free. You're, you're the, the grace would be, it's totally free. We're just giving away hamburgers. Um, but, uh, you're obligated to keep the whole law. It, it means no, that hamburger isn't actually free. You, you're paying for it with the hamburger that you're buying. And so then that's, that's your work that you're doing. I, I think it's just hard for us to grasp what truly free is, what grace actually is, just because everything in the world comes with some kind of a cost. Yeah, and so you know, verse, excuse me, verses five and six, he talks about the opposite of works is faith, uh, is one thing like you said, and then also through the Holy Spirit, and then the righteousness for which we hope. And then the last verse, uh, or yeah, verse six, he says, faith expressing itself through love. So the opposite of works. Nathaniel, what does Paul mean when he writes then, waiting for the sure hope of righteousness? Yeah, uh, the translation there adds the word sure to, to indicate what is a biblical truth, that our hope is different from, from earthly hope. And uh, Christianity is always a, a both now and not yet uh, proposition. And there are certainly elsewhere in Galatians and elsewhere in Romans where he talks about a righteousness right now. Here, when he talks about the sure hope of righteousness, um, he's talking about the the consummate righteousness that we will enjoy, not just by faith, but also by sight and by sense um, in heaven, um, in God's glorious presence. And uh, we call that a hope uh, because it's not yet seen, it's not yet realized, but it, we call it a sure hope uh, because it's different from all earthly hopes. It's different from hoping that the weather's nice tomorrow or uh, hoping that so-and-so wins the sports contest. Um, when we anchor our faith in Christ, the righteousness of heaven is is certainly ours and is undoubtedly ours. And so it's a sure hope different from earthly hopes. Guys, do you guys have anything else you want to bring up with this epistle lesson? It's definitely uh, that, I mean, that strong verse, verse four, um, this is definitely the warning and why denominations matter um, still today and why we still make a big deal out of the Reformation. Um, there are certainly people in every Christian church body who do believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, and those people are going to heaven regardless of their denominational membership. Um, but the official teaching of many of those nominally Christian church bodies is that they're not saved by grace alone, but they're saved by grace plus something, grace plus works, faith plus works, faith plus um, your love for your neighbor, whatever. And so that that verse four is just a very powerful verse, even still to this day, you who are trying to be declared righteous by the law are completely separated from Christ. Um, God wants to give it to you for free. Take it for free. <laughs> uh, don't don't mix your don't mix your own works into it. Well, one of the things that I bring up with that, too, is because sometimes we as Wisconsin Lutherans can uh, be kind of prideful, you know, because we don't have those works of faith plus works. And then I remind I try to remind our people, no, we do have works. I always call it Lutheran penance. And what I mean by that is, you know, we understand Catholic penance. Well, I have to say the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers. I have to. Uh, make up for this with money or whatever. And yet as Lutherans, when I bring it up, I said, how often do you feel guilty for sins that you've already been forgiven for? You know that God forgives you and you know, it's so easy. So you make yourself feel guilty. So you may, that's your penance is to make yourself uh, feel worse because uh, you have to feel something. You have to contribute something, even if it's just guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we think well, we can be a little more certain of God's forgiveness if we can just make ourselves feel bad enough before him. Um, so, yeah, that's the, really the same error. And obviously works is part of the picture, right? Paul says at the very end, faith with which works by love. But that's just the beautiful nature of faith, that when we do realize our salvation is full and free, then um, the, the natural response of the Holy Spirit living in that living in us and living through that faith is that we want to do good works. We want to honor God and we want to serve our neighbor. 
Uh, so that's the beauty of the gospel, that those works come out of us naturally rather than getting beaten out of us with the rod. Yeah. Anything else, Jeremy? I think I'm all set. All right. So wrap it up. This is Michael Zarling with Nathaniel Biebert and Neon Lightning. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.